Our text will be found in verses 13 through 17 as we continue on in our series, what I call Marked for a Mission. That song, holy, holy, holy. Do you get this? One day, okay, we, we get to be there. And we just fall on our faces in His presence. There's a part of me that I'm just like, let's just get the show on the road. Let's just go. Let's go. But, but God has placed us here, right here, right now, for a mission. And so we hold on to His Word tightly, and we listen to His Spirit carefully, and we say, Lord, direct us on the mission You've given Uh, Welcome every one of you, especially if you are visiting with us. A special welcome. It's just great to have Josh and and Krista here uh, for the weekend. Let me just say, um, and I am inviting every single one of of us together as a body. Uh, You know that we started 2016 by really focusing um, on the vision um, that God has given to us, how we understand how we own and how we accomplish that. And what we committed to do was to take the month of January and just commit to pray. And we spent a lot of time um, in prayer. And what is really neat is that it's really been over that last month uh, that God is is really beginning to move. Um, Even as an update on the building and the Vision 2020 that um, we were somewhat in a a little bit of a, uh, what we called a pause. Lord, what are you doing what, what are we supposed to do? And that uh, banks have approached us and we are in, in dialogue and we are praying for wisdom and I'm encouraging you to pray for wisdom uh, for the elders and for the Vision 2020 team. It's a really, a, a good friend of mine, Scott Heckman, reminded me, it's not a, it's not a pause. He used it, he said, it's like halftime at a football game. And I thought it's just a great reminder. Um, over the past month as well, uh, God has introduced us to Josh and Krista. Let me remind you, this is a big step for Big Woods. This is a big step for all of us. It's going to stretch us. Um, and so I am encouraging you to be in prayer as we are seeking God's perfect will. It's, it's His church. Okay, this is not ours. It's not what we want. It's what He wants. So I'm encouraging you to continue to be in prayer as we seek God's perfect will for the mission that He's given, the vision He's called us to accomplish in regards to the building, in regards to the pastoral staff, and moving this body further down the road for His glory. Um, with that thought, I, I need to pray. Would you bow your heads and pray with me as we commit our time uh, together to the Lord? <clears throat> Father, we come before You, and our, our heads are bowed as an indication, Lord, of who you are and all of your might and all of your glory and all of your sovereignty. And we come into your presence, Lord, only through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are grateful. Lord, we, we love you that, that you loved us when we are most unlovable. We're, we're, we're unlikable in our flesh. You saw us and you rescued us and you redeemed us have called us and you've set us apart. God, we lift up your name and we praise your name for that. 
we come before you as a church, as, as a part of your body. God, we plead for wisdom from you. A word from you. Uh, we thank you for the amazing things that you are doing. We thank you, Lord, for, for the people that are here in story after story and testimony after testimony of changed lives. And we would rejoice, but we also, Lord, ask that you would equip us as we continue to promote the truth of the gospel and we seek to exalt the name of Jesus. God, even now as we dig into your word, please um, guard my lips from saying anything that would not bring glory to the name of Jesus. Give my mind clarity. Father, may your perfect will be accomplished. We, we just desperately seek that. We, we ask, Lord, for your will, your way. We love you. These things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. And amen. <clears throat> Okay, we have been studying the Gospel of Mark, kind of straight to the point um, style that he has. And we have been looking into the ministry and the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is, what's very, very clear, it's very evident, is that Jesus simply does not fit in the world that he was um, called to be and to redeem. Um, the Son of God, the creator of the entire universe, the Savior of the world, the Messiah for all mankind. He came with one mission to save sinners, to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, to offer hope. And we've seen his ministry. He's been healing the sick, the lepers, the lame. And most importantly, most importantly, and we saw this last week when we were together, it, it's far worse of a condition to be crippled in soul than to be crippled in body. Jesus came with one purpose, and that is what? To forgive sins. Remember this. Jesus is always more concerned about your soul than he is about your body. But as Jesus came, what happened to him? He was was rejected. He was despised. He was hated. And he was murdered. And the reason that Jesus was murdered, the reason that Jesus was crucified, was that he he wasn't religious enough. The the people that put him to death, that nailed him to the cross, were actually more concerned about the formality and the box of religion than they were over relationships. Jesus came and turned everything upside down. He's more concerned about relationships, relationship with you. More concerned about that than he is the formality of religion. And we we see that especially clear, especially close in the text that is before us today. It, It reveals, and it's really not even that far of a stretch of a word, the absolute scandal that erupts that Jesus Christ displays grace. That's what we want to talk about this morning, the subject of grace and why grace wins. Jesus comes and he actually sits down with and he eats a meal with and he talks with known crooks and criminals and thieves and embezzlers, extortioners, 
prostitutes. It says what? Tax collectors and sinners. But in, in doing that, as Jesus spent time in doing that, he shows them what? He offers a whole different way. He is teaching and he is telling them about his way. About what? The way. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth and life. No one comes unto the Father except through and, and what he does, it is shocking. It, it rattles. I read one commentator describe the text with the title at the top that referred to this, these verses as the scandal of grace. Now think about it. We know the gospel. We know that scripture teaches, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Therefore, we know what it is his work. It's all about his work. It's not our work. We know that if one is saved, they are to accept the gift of grace as offered to them by faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are admitting when we receive that, that there is a need for us to be saved. Again, therefore, we understand what? The gospel is not for good people. The gospel is for people who know what? That they're bad. Salvation is not for people who think that they're righteous. Salvation is for people who know that they are not righteous. And so keep that in mind as we read this narrative. This scene here, the text is brilliant. It's significant. So much so that it actually appears in all three of the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the exact same story. It gives us the essence, the glory of the gospel. Mark chapter 2, we pick it up in verse 13. Here it is. He, speaking of Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. The scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. As we introduce uh, this, I want you to hold on to a woman's name. Um, Her name is Rosario Butterfield, just a great name. She was a tenured Uh, professor of English literature at Syracuse University uh, back in the late 90s. Um, She was a lesbian um, living in a serial, living in serial monogamous relationships, and she was an outspoken uh, advocate for gay rights um, for the LGBT community. Uh, She was pro-choice. She was a vegan she was everything in a sense that we would say uh, she's different than we are in every way. 
um, what she oftentimes did, she was a writer, she, she, would, she would hear of, of Christians and Christianity in local churches, and she, she would write editorials, and, and she wrote this scathing editorial, an attack against Christianity and against those who believe. How could you ever believe the Bible? And this editorial was published, and it was picked up by uh, an elder of a local church. And the elder was frustrated. What do we do with this? He took the, he took the newspaper article. He actually went into the office of, of the pastor and he put the article down on his desk and he said, you need to find a woman to, uh, a way to shut this woman up and, and explain the situation. And the pastor's first response was this. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe my wife and I should have her over for dinner. He was shocked by that. What's interesting is that this pastor actually uh, penned a letter, a response, and, and wrote to Rosario, Dr. Butterfield. And, and she received the letter, and on her desk, she had two files, one for, for fan mail, those who, who, who um, endorsed her, her belief system. And then she had another file for hate mail. And as she read this letter from this pastor, she realized... It doesn't fall into either category. He wrote that he loved God and loved the Word of God and that he wanted to get to know her more. And she was frustrated by that. She actually took the letter and she threw it in the garbage. Only to find herself later that night, she said, in the, in, in, in the basement of the the English department in the recycled bin and she's looking for that letter and she dug it out of the trash and she brought it and she put it on her desk and she said in her own words, and that letter stared at me for one solid week. He wants to meet me. Hold on to Rosario Butterfield. We'll get back to her in a little bit, but it's this idea, this story of grace. Three ideas I want to give you this morning. The first one is this. Grace grace wins. Grace wins, number one, because grace invites people to follow Jesus. Grace wins because grace invites people to follow Jesus. It says what in verse 13? We read in our text, and he, speaking of Jesus, passed by. He saw Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. All right, we know what's happening here. Jesus, the last time we were together, had just healed the, the paralytic, the paralyzed man. And, and remember, he was in the crowded building, a kind of hot, stuffy house. They had to cut a, a hole in the ceiling. So what happens, typical, you're finished, you want to get out of that kind of stuffy environment. He goes outside, he changes location, he takes a walk and says, where would you want to go? Down to the seashore. Some fresh air. The change of location certainly does not change his focus. There are still crowds that are following Jesus, and Jesus is still teaching. But as he, as he walks, typical, there's tables set up and booths of people selling their wares, and there is a tax collector sitting at his table. His name, it says in Scripture, was Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Now, now, hold on to the idea that the tax system that exists, ancient, okay, Middle Eastern, first century, Galilean, Judean region, is totally, totally different than what exists today. There was no IRS, okay? There's no TurboTax or online filing. 
There's no postal system where you can drop your um, uh, tax, uh, um, what is the tax stuff into? No post guy is going to bring you your tax return. There's nothing like, there is no tax return. You have to realize the entire region was what? The entire region was under Roman occupation. It was a controlled Roman Empire-controlled region, which means there's literally soldiers standing, muscled soldiers with swords and spears posted all over the place. It didn't matter. It didn't matter if you were a fisherman or a farmer or a shepherd or a shop owner. Every single person was required to pay a portion of their their income what as tax to Caesar. Rent under Caesar, that which is Caesar's. So a portion of what you earned was going what? To Caesar who's living in opulence in a palace 1,400 miles away in Rome. What's interesting here is that the tax collect collection system that was established by the Roman Empire was that they would hire locals to collect tax. And so what the locals oftentimes do is that they they know they've got a Roman soldier standing behind them. They would oftentimes use what? Force to intimidate, to threaten, and even extort as much as they could. Once they got enough for, the, for what was expected to be sent back to Rome, they could keep everything else for themselves. It might have been, what, an extra dozen eggs? It might have been some fish. It might have been a bushel of wheat or, or extra money. And so, in a sense, it was like legalized extortion. And these individuals who oftentimes were locals, were Jewish, were viewed as Traitors. They're actually supporting the Roman occupation rather than being true to their Jewish roots. Ultimately, what did it make tax collectors? They were hated. They, they, they were what? They were despised. So what people saw when they were walking by this table is a tax collector who was some greasy slime ball, a conniving scum, a con man. Levi was looked down upon. Condition that really, if you think of it back in Mark chapter 1, remember the, the man with leprosy? Stay away, he's unclean. Is kind of the same idea with tax collectors. You don't, you don't want to be close to them. They're thieves, they're crooks. He was in a sense, what? A, a disgrace to his family. He was, he was a discredit to his own character. He was distant, certainly could not worship with 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 others in the synagogue. He was an outsider in every way. And you see this man has a serious problem, but when Jesus walks by, he doesn't see who this man is. He sees what this man can be. Praise God, that's exactly it is for all of us. God doesn't just see you with who you are. Your lumps and bumps and scrapes and scars and problems... God sees you for who you can be. Jesus, Jesus, what? Two simple words. Exact same words that he used in Mark chapter 1 when he called Peter and Andrew and James and John. He says, follow me. Now you can almost envision the, the, the setting, the scene. Jesus is calling him to be close to him. Come with me. Offering him what? Friendship and relationship. 
And Levi is used to what? Being looked down upon and being set apart and ostracized and separated. It's almost like as Jesus calls him, Levi's like, whoa, you mean, is there you, you, you want me? Ever happened to you before when someone in a sense kind of calls on you? You move from, from isolation, maybe you're set apart. You're the weird kid standing on the playground all by himself. From isolation to inclusion. There's something that's just beautiful with that. I remember in third grade I had a, a, a gym teacher and, and he was like really cool. He was real big. Um, Mr. Ransom, Doug Ransom, and he had that, it was the 70s, so he had that kind of like feathered hair look, and he was like so cool. But he had, he had white Adidas sneakers, and he drove a cool car, and so Mr. Ransom was always like, whoa, there he is. And I remember one time after gym class, he's like, hey, hey, Tim, why don't you come with me, and, and you can help me set up for field day. And it was one of those, like, you sure? It's the same idea. He called me. He wants me to do something. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. That's exactly what Jesus is asking for you to do with others who are isolated, who are set apart. Call others to follow Jesus. That's how grace wins. Secondly, grace wins because what grace offers a relationship with Jesus. Grace wins because grace offers a relationship with Jesus. Look at the response. It says in verse in verse 15, what? He rose, speaking of Levi. He rose and followed him. And it, and it kind of moves the scene down the road a little bit to his house as he reclined at table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. I was writing a message this week, and and I'm thinking, what's going on inside of Levi's head? What's he thinking about? Now, you realize it's a small town, okay, Capernaum. And and everyone knows about Jesus. They've watched the crowds, perhaps even sitting at his little his little table or his little tax booth, he, he perhaps has even overheard Jesus' teaching before. The, the very fact of his occupation, that it's kind of like it's, it's, it's supposed to be in a public place so that people see him. And, and I, love, I love Levi's response. As I was, as I was reading, saying, I, was, I was praying, Lord, I want that to be my response. As a pastor, I, I want Levi's response. I want that to be all of our response. Look, look what it says, and he rose and followed him. It, there's no record of you know him, okay, we're, we want to turn a sign from open to close. First he turned a sign, he closed up shop. No. There's no sign of him counting his money. There's no sign of him trying to sell his business to the guy down the roads. No, it, it says this. Matter of fact, Matthew... Um, records exactly the same words. And he rose and followed him. Luke adds just a little bit of a different and a little bit more detail. He says this. Luke records it like this. And leaving everything. Leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. There's this idea 
of what? Obedience. That, that there's an urgency to it. There's an immediacy to it. And it's a completeness. It's leaving every single thing. Later we read that Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 16, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. Forsake yourself. Give up everything and come after me. Paul describes it like this in Romans chapter 12, what? That we are to offer ourselves a living sacrifice, which means what? You die to self. It is a reminder that when Jesus calls us, He's telling us what? That you cannot follow Him and continue to hold on that which is old. You can't do that. Everything, everything is left. Your habits, perhaps even your hobbies, your language changes, your lifestyle changes, everything. And with With Levi, that's what happens. It's a change of location physically. It's a change of of direction. What's interesting is this, is that he even chooses to change his name. There's no record anywhere. Like, no one gave him this. It's really, they believe he just changed. He's like, you know what? I am no longer Levi. I'm no longer the, the scum tax collector. And he, what? Levi becomes Matthew. One of those that are closest to everything is different. What is amazing to me is that I, I'm still, I, I still get kind of rattled and shocked of people who say, yeah, um, I'm a Christian. I, I'm, I, I want to be one like Christ. I want to follow Christ. And there is no difference. There's, there's no change. There's no repentance. Old habits still exist. I'm not saying that when we follow, everything becomes perfect. I'm saying that we have got to strive to allow the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us to give us victory over. But we make radical and dramatic changes all over the place. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what, that's what Levi did. That's what Matthew did. Back to the narrative. Can you imagine heading out to dinner at your friend's house. Oh yeah, and by the way, Jesus shows up. Yeah, the, the, the son that we saw sat last night, the beauty, the one who painted the sky and created, yeah, that's the one who's coming to dinner. The one who, did you see the sun even rise this morning? And there's this ball of fire and the, the sky changes color. The one who did, yeah, he's coming to dinner with us. That's, that's exactly what happened. It's amazing to see here that Jesus eats dinner with, he spends time with, he becomes a friend to sinners. I love the picture as well that it says that, and this is noted as well that in Mark chapter 2, this is the first time the word disciples, as far as describing Peter, Andrew, James, and John, this is the first time that that word, it's, it's mathetes, it actually is used. It means one who follows and ones who learn. And so what is happening is that these disciples are following Jesus and they're learning. If Jesus is a friend of sinners, then we are to be friends of sinners. 
Now the concern is what? And we hear that all over the place with some of the separatists and the legalists. They say, well, if you get too close to sinners, you know, that dirt's going to come off. No, no, that's not what Scripture says. The, the Scripture is very clear. Jesus actually prays in His high priestly prayer, the only way that we can ever be free from sin is if we're taken out of this world. Listen to what it says in, in John chapter 17, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. He, he says, I, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I love this. Sanctify them. Set them apart in the truth, because your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for the sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be. And here's it repeated again. Be sanctified in truth, set apart, kept holy. And so we're able to build relationships. We're able to be a friend of sinners when we are rooted in the truth of the gospel message. Scripture is clear that we, we are not to separate from those who are, who are lost. The only time that we actually are to separate are those who claim to be believers, who claim to be followers, and are living nothing the way the Scripture says. That's the only difference. Thirdly and finally, grace wins because grace extends forgiveness through Jesus. Grace extends forgiveness through Jesus. Again, it is as Jesus is doing ministry, just like the whole time, there's been these like buzzing mosquitoes and black flies and gnats. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees have been to Jesus. They've been just a constant plague to him. And they immediately criticize Jesus. The Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees hate the fact. They despise the fact. They see that the fact that Jesus is hanging around sinners. And Jesus reveals the fact that he, he, just, he just doesn't fit here. He doesn't fit in this world. And his righteousness surpasses even those who think they are right. We know that Jesus never gets distracted. He stays on mission the entire time. Jesus never gets rattled. He's not bothered by this. He gives a response, and I read, and I quote, that is simple, it is brilliant, and devastating. Here's the response. People criticizing him for hanging around sinners. How dare you? Listen to this response. Jesus said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. What does he do? It gives to us a picture. It'd be you saying, um, yeah, I'm going to call my doctor up. Yeah, Doc Turner, listen, I'd like to make an appointment because I'm feeling fine. Uh, <laughs> it just doesn't work like that. Who's going to schedule an appointment just to say, hey, check this out? It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Jesus, why? It is, a, it is a strong indictment, a strong rebuke against the so-called religious rights who in all honesty were nothing more than purveyors of guilt and legalism. Remember what, what grace offers hope to those that don't have it. Grace 
brings life. And what the Pharisees, the scribes of the Pharisees were doing were, were, were condemning and, and stifling and killing. Remember, remember Rosario Butterfield? Listen, hopefully we have this clip. Listen to this as we pick up the story of Rosario. I want to return to that pastor because one of the things that struck me in, in reading uh, your book, or maybe it was in an interview you did, uh, you talked about going to his home and to being there with uh, with his family. And uh, I think you were vegan at the time, is that right? Uh, and didn't uh, didn't believe in air conditioning, environmental concerns about air conditioning. So, well, I don't know why I have people are laughing at that. Yeah, but, uh, but here, here's what here's what here's what. Here's what I think is remarkable about this pastor that I've not met, but that you've pictured here for me, is it seems to me, in the way that you put this, your time over there was not a sparring match over Romans 1 every night. Uh, and also, it was not a debate over whether or not you ought to be eating meat or not, or whether or not you ought to be uh, using air conditioning or not. Uh, but you talk about the fact that the, the guy shut off the air conditioning for you, and he fed you uh, the sort of food that you uh, would eat and loved you. I mean, I think that's something that all of us need to understand what's going on in his life that would enable him to be so Christ-like right, in that way. Right. Well, for those of you who know Ken Smith, and, and I was just able to talk with him last week, uh, he's a, a wonderful, godly example of an ordinary Christian. That's what, that's what Ken is. Uh, he believes that union with Christ is... The, the way that he interfaces with the world. Did I just do that? No. Sorry about that, if I did. Um, but but when, um, when I first met Ken, I had written this article in the, uh, the Syracuse newspaper, and it was about the Promise Keepers. And I don't remember what terrible offense the Promise Keepers did. Maybe they used up my favorite parking space that day. But it was an outrage, and I wrote an editorial. And... And one of, Ken's, um, one of Ken's elders put the editorial on his desk and said, Ken, you need to shut up this woman. She is big trouble. Okay, <laughs> She wrote the first domestic partnership policy at Syracuse. You know, she is just big trouble. We need to shut her up. And Ken apparently looked up at this elder and said, oh, you know, maybe, maybe Floyd and I should invite her over for dinner. <laughs> and you can just imagine what this young young elder was thinking, right? He's thinking, you are too old, get out of the business. But one of the things that, that Ken was um, and is very gifted at is realizing that my orientation was a soul orientation. And I needed to understand that. But the other thing that Ken was so good at is that he realized that he also needed to listen. And he needed to know where I was coming from and what some of the uh, values that I had and what my, uh, you know, what my ethics were, what I cared about. He didn't presume that I was a blank slate. And so at that first dinner that we had in his house, and I'll tell you, the only reason I went is I thought this would be so good for my research. You know, I just cannot even tell you. <laughs> Who, you know, who, wow. So, um, so that's why I went. I was a user. I was happy to be a user. And, um, um, and, uh, but what I met there was someone who was as committed to community as I am, as committed to hospitality as I am, 
someone for whom conversations about sexuality and politics didn't send him under the chair. Um, I also met someone who did two very important things at that first meeting that made me feel a little bit like chopped liver, but that's okay. Number one, he actually did not share the gospel with me. And number two, he did not invite me to church. And because of those two omissions to the whole script, right, the script by which we come at each other, I really trusted that this was someone who was the real deal, whatever that meant. Um, Rosario kind of shares, and we get a little bit of a glimpse there. Uh, what's interesting is that that began a, a two-year relationship where she would go and she would sit uh, one night a week and have dinner. Um, and eventually um, the gospel was shared, and she did uh, give her life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, she's actually uh, now married uh, to a pastor in North Carolina. They just adopted their fourth child. And God is using her as a speaker, as an, as an author, as an amazing testimony um, that God can rescue and redeem anyone, anyone. And that's, that's really a picture of, of what we're seeing modeled before us right here through the Lord Jesus Christ. I was looking, as we, as we conclude here, there's not a lot, there's really not a lot of like difficult, complicated points of application that we kind of extract from the text. He, he, here's number one. Do what Jesus did. Go go eat with sinners. That's, that's really what we are called to do, to establish the relationship, to eventually, as was here, eventually share the gospel and invite them, perhaps not on the first visit. Secondly, what... Don't do what the Pharisees did. Don't point at and cut on and criticize those who are seeking to build relationships that are intentional, that are based on the gospel. Jesus has a strong rebuke of the incorrect zealousness. He exposes insincere holiness. We have to hold on to this. As I said, it is a magnificent and it is a significant text. It teaches us and tells us, just like Jesus, how we are to fulfill the mission that he has called us to be on.